From training to performing, join our Big League Conversation. Welcome to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast with your host, Eric Cressy. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to episode six of the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. I'm Eric Cressy, and I'm excited for uh, today's episode with Adam Ottavino from the New York Yankees. He's quickly risen to stardom on the internet as having some of the nastiest stuff in baseball, and we're going to talk about that and much more today. Before we get to it, I want to remind you that today's show is brought to you by the great folks at Lumberland. Uh, if you're looking for a super unique gift for the baseball fan in your life, Lumberland's got you covered. They've hollowed out the bat barrel and created the coolest drinking mug ever. Uh, it's fully customizable and great for commemorating any special occasion or event. Um, with Mother's Day and Father's Day coming up, uh, these are awesome gift ideas. You can customize them with names, colors, logos, photographs, and, and really do some creative stuff with it. I personally have given them gifts and they're always a, a big hit with the baseball fans in your life. Um, they're an officially licensed product of the Major League Baseball Players Association and there are designs available for every player and team. Um, in fact, they're pulling one together uh, uh, for Adam Ottavino with the Yankees logo and his signature on it as a little thank you for doing this um, this podcast today. Um, so you can drink straight from the barrel all season long with the Lumberland Bat Mug, the official Bat Mug of America's pastime. They're all handmade in the U.S. and designed exactly how you'd like them. Um, they're offering free shipping on two or more Bat Mugs with the coupon code CSP at checkout. That'll get you free shipping on your purchase of two or more Bat Mugs at Lumberland.com. Again, that's Lumberland, L-E-N-D.com on the end, and you can design your own bat mug today. With that said, we're going to get to our guest. Today's guest is a relief pitcher for the New York Yankees who was actually born and raised in Brooklyn. He was drafted out of high school, but instead chose to attend Northeastern University, where he became a first-round draft pick in 2006 by the St. Louis Cardinals. Made his major league debut in 2010, and in 2012, he was claimed off waivers by the Rockies. And in the years that followed, he transitioned into a successful reliever. Um, He signed a three-year deal with the Yankees this past offseason, which also coincided with when he started up with Cressy Sports Performance, and we're excited to welcome to the podcast Adam Ottavino. Welcome to the show, Adam. Thank you. This is going to be a lot of fun. I'm, I'm excited to chat with you, and I've, I've known you for an off-season now, and we've had a, a bunch of mutual friends, but I've actually got a bunch of questions I'm excited to hear the answer on because we haven't had a chance to talk about it. So um, obviously, I've already introduced you to, uh, to our audience, but you know, it, it certainly helps to hear it a little bit more detailed directly from you. Um, and I'm curious, you were, you were drafted out of high school, but instead chose to attend Northeastern. So you're a New York guy. You know, the overwhelming majority of, of good high school arms in the Northeast are desperate to go to Florida or Texas or out West or someplace warm. And you wound up at Northeastern. How did that come about? Yeah, you know, I was too. But, um, you know, just to be honest, my options were kind of limited. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my recruiting process was mostly local schools. Um, mm-hmm. You know, St. John's, Fordham um, were in on me. But I didn't really want to stay at home, I felt like I was going to stagnate a little bit if I stayed at home and just hung out with the same guys, did the same stuff on the weekends. And I kind of wanted to go somewhere where I could like immerse myself in like a different culture. Absolutely. And, um, you know, uh, with Northeastern, you know, it just kind of worked out. I, I went up there to, to their camp and I threw, um, 
you know, like they're kind of like their prospect camp and I threw and, um, I impressed them right away and right away they wanted me to come like, and they were telling me all the right things. Like you're going to play right away, which was a big yeah. priority for me. Absolutely. So, um, you know, that, and it, you know, it's a good school too. So my, my father was all in on that idea. Absolutely. Now you were still drafted out of high school. So I, I would assume you were, you were obviously a, a good arm in high school. Was that something that surged kind of senior year after you had already committed? Was it something where it's kind of like a steady progression throughout? How did that come about? Yeah, I think, uh, that's kind of, um, kind of like the thing about, uh, you know, how velocity impacts your prospect status. So mm-hmm. I was really projectable type guys, what they told me when I was younger, cause I was like tall, lanky and skinny. And I had a lot of good pitches, but I didn't throw particularly hard mm-hmm. um, until basically midway through my senior year. Now, my junior year, I, I was dominating, but I wasn't throwing very hard. So there was a little bit of skepticism, I think, from college coaches um, trying to project that. And so um, during my senior year, I had already committed to Northeastern. And then I started like, you know, really like throwing harder and looking more like the real deal. So mm-hmm. at that point, People started wanting me after I got drafted, but it was it was too late at that point. Yeah, absolutely. And you 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 led right into my next question. And you, you talked about how you were a guy who kind of always had stuff, and the velocity came later. Were, were you a guy? Could you always manipulate the baseball at a high level? Like, was that obviously you have a you know dirty slide, or you can differentiate it from the cutter? And there's you know there's a lot of like arm side run to your fastball. Did you have that movement in high school? Like, where it was just something you were always able to do, or was that something that took a lot of fine tuning early in your career? Um, I didn't have the two seam, but, um, I always had a big breaking ball, like going back, like really young, like even to like 10 years old, I threw big curveballs, And, um, that was kind of what made me good at pitching is that I had a big breaking ball that kind of mesmerized the hitters when they weren't used to seeing that when we were young. So that's kind of what kept me, uh, kept me in pitching until my, uh, strength and like body kind of caught up with the rest of the guys and I could throw fastballs too. Absolutely. Did you have a hard time as you went, you know, from high school to college, college to minor league and into the big league ball? Did you find that you, you had to really change your grip or not so much your grip, but your ability um, to manipulate the ball because the seam height changed or the baseball felt slicker or anything like that? Has that modified over the years? I don't think the baseball was the biggest factor. I just mm-hmm. think it was the, the competition um, told me how to, that I had to change some things like, I always, like I said, had a really big breaking ball. And when I was younger, it was great because guys were, like I said, were kind of mesmerized by it. But when I got to like the double A level, mm-hmm. they weren't anymore. They could see it out of my hand. And because it was so big and had like kind of a hump coming out of my hand, they could track it really well. All of a sudden, I wasn't getting any chases anymore. And the ones that were in the zone, guys were swinging at. So at that point, I had to kind of reevaluate it. And that was the first time that um, I had to kind of make an adjustment on that pitch. What, what about the, like the adjustment to altitude? Like everyone always talks about it with the Rockies, you know, certainly guys who play there. Did you find that your, your breaking ball was really massively impacted being in Albuquerque and then in Colorado, or is it something that didn't impact you as much as other guys? I mean, everything is impacted there because of uh, the altitude. Like your Mm -hmm. pitches just aren't going to move the same as they will at sea level. Mm -hmm. But I think because I had an ability to spin the ball well, I think I, on my breaking pitch, I was a little bit less impacted than some other guys are mm-hmm. because I was able to kind of like um, almost spin it enough where the difference wasn't as huge. Yep. And also like, and I've told people this before, but there's kind of a hidden built-in advantage to having a good breaking ball at course Field. And 
that is that like sometimes if you hang a ball at sea level it'll kind of come right back down into the hitting zone but it cores if you sometimes if you really really mess it up and hang it it, it will just kind of stay high and yeah. it will stay out of the zone so um i would throw a lot of like kind of these high sliders mm-hmm. at times where guys would be waiting from the break and they would swing under them and um I really got lucky with that for quite a while, and uh, it gave me a lot more confidence to continue to throw that pitch uh, when I was at course. Absolutely. Do you feel the ability to spin the ball is something that you're, you're born with, or is it something that that you know develops over time? Because obviously, I get you know questions from every dad on the planet who wants to know: a) when is the best time for my son to start throwing curveballs, and and b) like, hey, my 14 year old has a terrible curveball. Is it time to work on it? And then, you know, we have guys that go to pro ball who still don't have a breaking ball. What would your recommendation be to those like teenage, you know, pitchers on the, on the line here who are, who are actually curious about figuring out how to make their breaking ball better? Yeah. So I do think that kind of the way you're built and some of that physical attributes you have are a big factor, Mm -hmm. like things like grip strength and like the size of your, you know, how long your arms are and your hands Mm -hmm. and like the flexibility of your joints and all that type of stuff Mm -hmm. does matter. But I also think like, you know, just some good old-fashioned practice. Like, people don't yeah. tend to practice throwing breaking pitches yeah. really, like, at all. And as a mm-hmm. kid, I did. Like, I always threw them in catch play, like, because I thought it was fun to try to make the ball curve a lot. And then mm-hmm. me and my dad would come up with drills, like, kind of, like, we're in a gymnasium, try to throw, like, one hoppers into the wall. Like, so, like, mm-hmm. you throw a curveball where it, like, kind of, like, one hops into the wall, kind of practicing, like, landing it on the plate and things mm-hmm. like that. And I still do that stuff to this day, so... I think obviously, you know, you're, you're, you have what you have physically, but you can mm-hmm. improve your command and, and your feel for things um, just through some practice. And, and you said that you, you obviously throw it a lot in catch play, which I think is, is huge. And do you try to do too much? I mean, is that something you have to be cognizant of? I know a lot of like the big league guys we talk about is that, you know, they just want to feel the spin coming out of their hands, but they're not looking for their breaking stuff to be nasty when they're, you know, just playing catch with it. Or will you actually look to really shape it? Yeah, so this is where it gets a little complicated. So for me, I did it my whole life. I threw breaking balls and catch play like as a kid. But now that I'm older, I actually don't throw my big breaking ball and catch play anymore because I learned that, like, I already kind of know how to throw it, but it's just going to mess me up to throw it on flat ground. So my catch play dynamic now is I throw a lot of four seam fastballs to try to practice staying direct, directly behind the ball. And then when I come in close, I throw like two seamers and cutters kind of alternating so that I, cause those pitches I try to stay directly behind the ball and throw fastballs, like have visualized those are straight fastballs too and let the grip do the job. And then when I get on the mound, like pregame, that's when I will all of a sudden throw my breaking ball a little more. But in the off season, I still practice it a little bit on flat ground, still do those same drills. So, yeah. you know, I, I do a lot of stuff that's kind of um, just, because I've learned how I can mess myself up in the past, I try to avoid it. So for me, like big breaking balls on flat ground, like day of a game, that's a mistake. Yeah. That's actually really good feedback. I think you got to discover your own process and we're going we're to come back to like pitch selection, sequencing design, that side of things. But I, I want to build to it a little bit with some other questions. So career ERA in minor league baseball was a four, two, seven career ERA in major league baseball is a three, six, four. And it's, it's dramatically lower than that even over the last two years. So you're a, you're a super bright guy and, and we'll, we'll talk a little about kind of the lab and all that stuff. What was the biggest difference between the minor leagues and the major leagues? Was it that the information you had at your fingertips was just a, a game changer for attacking hitters and understanding your strengths? What, what was the biggest change that made you a better big league pitcher than a minor league pitcher? 
I mean, there's it's no one thing, but um, you know, the first thing is that um, when I was in the minors, I was starting, and yeah. starting is just a different animal than relief than relief pitching. Uh, that was my next question. <laughs> yeah, and um, you know, I, I I I was pretty good at times, but I was a little inconsistent as a starter, and I felt like as I got up the ranks, um, they would put a lot more lefties in the lineup against me. Because when you're a starter, obviously they can strategize against you like from pregame. So, yep. you know, one thing in uh, growing up, you don't face a ton of left-handed hitters, but it seems like they're everywhere in pro baseball. So that really hurt. That really affected me um, just on a basic level. Um, I hadn't, I didn't figure out how to get lefties out faster than they could put them in the lineup. So uh, <laughs> my consistency suffered. Um, but to answer the second part of your question, like the, it is true that when you're in the big leagues, you get a lot more like real feedback um, based on facts. Like um, you can watch your games right away after you pitch. You can look at all the data on what worked, what didn't work. You can kind of become your own pitching coach really, really easily. And in the era that I pitched in, in the minors was a little bit before that stuff happening in the yeah. minors. So relying a lot on other people's opinions and other people's feedback. And as, as much expertise as they have, sometimes coaches didn't pitch exactly the way you do. And, you know, some of the things that they talk about are hard for maybe you to put into practice and it can just be a bad fit sometimes. Absolutely. And so it's funny, you're, you're a 2006 draft pick at, from Northeastern. So you were in, uh, in Boston for the 2004 World Series Championships. I, I know you'll appreciate this next question. So yeah. late in his career, um, I had Kurt Schilling as, as Kurt was thinking about a comeback. And I'll always remember him saying, you know, I could never read hitters in real time. I had to go and watch video. And he's like, meanwhile, Pedro Martinez could see it pitch to pitch. And that's something we see from like a Kluber. Kluber reads hitters very well in game. Are you a guy that can see stuff in game or do you have to go and watch a lot of video in line with kind of that, that analytics question? Well, I do both. Like I try to watch the video, you know, so I can pick up on like overall stuff about the hitters, but I've gotten to the point like last two or three years um, where I've really started to be able to see the stuff in the game a lot better. Um, It just came with, came with experience, just came with time and really learning how my pitches work together. Um, I think if you don't have all of your stuff working, like you're going to be so internally focused that you're not going to see anything else. But once like you have everything working kind of as a given on a day, like, oh, well, my pitches are going to be there, so now it's just choices, then at that point you start to see stuff that you never saw before. It's kind of fun. Yeah, absolutely. And so, what, you know, building back to the, the or working back to the starter versus reliever discussion, what were, would be some advice you would give to guys who have, you know, just been moved from starting to the bullpen? Like some guys love the unpredictability of it. Like I could throw any day and other guys, they, they go crazy because they're so routine driven and it, it shakes their world up. Did you have adjustment struggles or, you know, were there things that you learned that made it easier? Yeah, I had some really good mentors because um, <clears throat> I uh, only was really in the minor leagues in the bullpen for like three weeks. And mm-hmm. at that point, I didn't know what I was doing. I was basically just going in there and saying, I'm going to go you know, balls to the wall with everything. Mm-hmm. And it worked out okay. And then when I got to the big leagues, um, you know, three weeks later, I immediately latched on to Matt Belisle and uh, Raphael Betancourt, who were the veterans in our pen at the time. Mm-hmm. And I just picked up on some stuff that they were doing. And to me, like a huge adjustment is you know you know you have a chance to pitch in every game and for some guys that could cause a lot of anxiety but but the way I looked at it was like you don't have to worry about that until later and Mm -hmm. so you can kind of just go about your day and since you're not 100% sure 
don't get like caught up in that anxiety feeling. And then basically as you, the game develops and you see your spot coming, like, okay, this could be me, then it kicks in and it's, that's like where you access that adrenaline. So I kind of learned how to turn it off and then turn it on and be like hyper-focused for a shorter period of time. Absolutely. Are you a, like a big visualization guy as the game gets going? Like, do you, do you map the, the, the game out in your mind or how do you approach that? I mean, yeah, you know, as the game goes, I kind of, you kind of see like where your spot will be. And then mm -hmm. I just try to focus on the first hitter. You know, I don't want to mm -hmm. get too far ahead and just keep it, keep it um, short and simple. And how am I going to get ahead of that first hitter? Usually that's kind of the studying I did pregame, but I'm visualizing making that first pitch, getting strike one and then kind of going from there. You know, and so you you also right after you you got to the big leagues as the relief on the reliever side of things, you had Tommy John in the middle of 2015. It was kind of right when you were making your mark. I think you had a zero ERA through like ten appearances that year. So you missed all, the latter half of 15 and then the first half of 16. You strike me as a guy that that understood that like that that year off can be a remarkable learning experience. What were some of the lessons that you took from you know being away from the game for that big chunk of time? What, what was it that you studied up on and worked on during that period? Yeah, uh, that's like just such a mental grind, and um, it's really hard to like watch the games and watch other people like kind of doing your job out there. Um, mm -hmm. But for me, uh, that was a great opportunity to get to get stronger. Um, mm -hmm. You know, especially in my lower half, like you, you can't really do much else with your upper half for a while. So I really attacked that and like attacked a lot of my physical deficiencies that I had kind of cropped up over all the years of pitching with no real like no real stopping. Mm -hmm. And then I still got a lot of mental reps like when I was hurt, like I really watched the games intently and focused on what was working in the league. Because I do think like overall, like there's some major trends that pop out every year in the league and you can kind of like. If you really pay attention, you can kind of see him and maybe hop on the train while it still works before the hitters close that gap down. So I really watched all that stuff. That way, when I came back, um, you know, I kind of knew how I wanted to use my pitches like right away. Um, and I was able to kind of seamlessly, you know, do that. That's awesome. And obviously, so you got back in 2016. and But really, the, the biggest progression was from in the 2017, it was an ERA over five. And then in 2018, it was an ERA of 2.43 and you, you punched out 112 guys in 77 innings. So there were some pretty big changes. It's a combination of pitch usage, designs, and sequencing. You fill us in a little bit on, on kind of what you worked on. Uh, I know you created your lab. Tell us about that between um, 17 and 18 and, and bring us up to speed on where you're at. Yeah, so coming off of uh, 16, I had come back from Tommy John and uh, threw the ball pretty well to end that year. I was like really, really proud of that. But that whole process the whole two years of it uh, from 15 all the way through 16 really left me kind of burnt out. Like I attacked it so hard that I was looking to give myself a break. So at the end of 16, that off season, that's my worst off season in my career. Like everything kind of fell apart that year. My throwing partner moved to Nashville. Um, I had a one year old, my training just wasn't where it needed to be. And I was burned out. So I didn't really do all the necessary things um, to kind of, make it foolproof. I just told myself like my, my ability will be there when I get to spring training. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of one of the worst mistakes you can make. So when I got to spring training, I was really, really out of whack mechanically, you know, from a focus perspective, just from a motivation perspective, just everything was out of whack and it led to a really poor year. So midway through that year, I kind of knew that it was the ship had sailed on the year. Like I had already blown the year up. Um, they weren't trusting me anymore. Um, you know, 
it was do or die. So at that point, I knew I just couldn't have an offseason like that again, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, we decided to try to look for a new training situation. So that's basically how the lab was born. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was lucky enough to get a little space in New York where I could kind of do my own thing and um, kind of be left alone. And I started reading a lot more of your stuff online. And I just wanted to attack everything from every angle. Um, mm-hmm. Learn about what the guys were doing in driveline. Look, learn what you were doing from the, you know, the training side. Um, you know, read articles about what successful pitchers were doing and just kind of digest all of that over the last two months of the season, then come up with a really systematic plan to get better. And um, that's what I did. I took no time off. I basically corrected my mechanics in the first month while I was getting stronger. And then I, I built up my arm to the point where I could get off the mound early. And then I started using the technology to kind of fix my pitches um, and make them a little more consistent as we went into the season. And luckily I was able to kind of pick it up quickly and, um, you know, surpass the level that I was at uh, prior to 17 when I thought I was pretty good. And then when I came back, all of a sudden I was much better in 18. Absolutely. So the thing that I'm actually really intrigued about, um, you know, the concept of having both a cutter and a slider, because a lot of guys really struggle with that. Um, you know, like we watch, like Kluber has both, although Corey's breaking ball has been called both a curveball and a slider. They don't know. It kind of rides two horses, one saddle. Um, you know, you see Scherzer do different things with his slider where it's a little more cutterish at times, but you know, a lot of people struggle to differentiate the two. So looking at fan graphs, your, your, your slider is 82.6 on average, your cutter is 87.9. What are the keys for you in making sure that, you know, two Pitchers that are independently nasty don't wind up being seen the same by hitters. Do you do you have certain things that you have to be really cognizant of? Yeah. So basically, actually, Kluber. I mean, I I watched him pitch so much that I feel like I'm kind of stealing what he does for the most <laughs> part. But um, you know, the the cutter idea. I just knew that I needed something that was an in between speed. Mm-hmm. You know, my fastball is like 93 ish, 94 ish, and my like my big breaking ball is really slow. It's like low 80s. So I knew I needed something in between because guys were either, either sitting on one or the other. And, you know, at some point they were going to get one of them. And so the cutter, I was toying with it for a few years, um, but I had the wrong concept of how to throw it. Like I thought of it more as like a tilted fastball instead of like this gyro spinning pitch that I have now. Mm-hmm. Um, so first I had to understand what type of spin I was trying to put on the ball. But then the second thing is, you know, using the cameras, I was able to see like what my keys were, like what to practice. And for me, it just turned out that I needed to alter my grip a little bit and be a little more pointer finger dominant on my cutter. And once I figured that out, I could practice it. And so I've now got like two years of practice under my belt on it. And now I can throw it and not think about it. And it feels totally different than my big breaking ball. So I don't have to worry about them like kind of getting in the way of each other. That's awesome. Um, and, and so this is the guest question. For, so Matt Maurizio was your college catcher at Northeastern. Matt's yeah. one of our retired pro guys and, and uh, one of my favorite people on the planet. So I reached out to him and he said, here's one that I think would help both young players and college coaches alike. And he, he basically said, you know, ask Adam about his continued development and commitment to learning what type of picture he is 
and what works specifically for him. So use the example, you know, of in college, ex with the exception of a few shakeoffs, the pitches were called from the dugout. So you didn't necessarily learn how to, you know, how to sequence pitches and, you know, how to uh, attack hitters in ways that you saw on the fly. And, and certainly once you get to minor league baseball, you know, you were the Cardinals and then you were the Rockies, you know, there, there are always specific mandates, you know, in certain organizations. We have, you know, one organization tells you, you always have to be a day two bullpen. Um, you know, and other organizations say no throwing past 120 and all that. Um, eventually, even as like a, you know, multi-year big leaguer, you know, you have to continue to refine your draft. So, you know, there are a lot of players that can learn how to stay true to who you are and appease your coaches at the same time. You know, what are some strategies that you would have for, you know, for younger pitchers coming up through that, you know, speaking to your own experiences at Northeastern and through the minors and then on to the, to the big leagues? Yeah, I think in college, like you get caught in that, uh, that kind of a crossroads between trying to win and trying to develop. And I think sometimes it gets tough because if the coach doesn't trust what's going to happen, obviously he wants to win. So he's going to start calling the pitches. Sometimes that does a disservice to the, to the pitcher because they don't understand the why of, mm -hmm. of everything. But, you know, for me, I learned a lot just by watching major league baseball games. Cause if you watch the games and you can kind of see, um, some patterns and if they work at the highest level, then they'll work anywhere. Mm -hmm. And you can kind of start seeing, um, what, you know, what really works out there. And I think for me, like in the minors, when I came up um, as a starter, there was a lot of talk about pitching to contact, throwing a lot of fastballs. And that was something that I hadn't done previously. I was always like a heavy off-speed usage pitcher, but I, but I felt like to, you know, hopefully fulfill my destiny as a starter one day, I needed to get good at getting guys out with my fastball so I could like get quick outs and keep my pitch count down and survive into the sixth, seventh inning. Um, unfortunately, that's really hard to do. You have to have unbelievable command, like certain type of fastball. Elite, elite defenders behind you. I mean, there's a yeah. lot of things. Yeah, yeah. And like for me, I was just getting foul balls. I was still running deep counts. Nothing was really, wasn't really working. So, you know, the, the whole organizational mandate thing, I think I'm surprised that that still goes on, to be honest. I, I think it would be better for everybody to kind of individually figure out their mix that's best for them in a given time period. And then if you have to adjust it, maybe you adjust it later. But, you know, I don't believe in cookie cutter pitching because every guy's ball is giving a different presentation to the hitter. So, you know, I think that process of learning who you are as a pitcher, um, it just takes reps and a lot of trial and error. You know, I, even in the big leagues, I can remember days where like, I thought I threw the ball pretty well. Mm -hmm. um, and I would go in the video room and be like, hey, video guy, that was a pretty good pitch to this guy. And he's like, yeah, that was a great pitch, but the guy got a hit. Anyway, and then over enough times of that, I was like, you know what? That's not a good pitch for me. Like, <laughs> it might be located well, but something about it, they're hitting that. So I'm going to stop yeah. doing that, you know? You got to differentiate between processes and outcomes, but if the outcomes continue to be bad, maybe the process wasn't good. Yeah, I think just yeah. over enough sample size, yep. then you can be convinced, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Walk me through what happens for you uh, first between pitches, right? So you give up an RBI double, whatever it is. What are you doing to wipe the slate clean before you go to the next one? Do you have a specific process between every pitch? I just try to, no matter what, I go on to the next pitch. Uh, just the, the pitch is over with, can't change it. But I try to really quickly evaluate what to throw next. Mm -hmm. And that's a combination of what I'm feeling in the moment the hitter's looking for and what I have working obviously that day and then what I looked at in my studying pregame it's just kind of a quick calculus that goes on mm -hmm. and then once I, once I decide then I put my 
put my foot on the rubber and I look in and try to get and you know try to shake to that pitch as soon as possible. Hopefully the catcher has it, but I really I've learned that like you just can't get caught up in in what just happened because like you know uh, limiting damage is is a huge thing in the game. Like you're going to get clipped for a run here or there, but if you can if you can get over it really fast and stop it, stop the bleeding, then you know that that's that's better for everyone. Absolutely. What about between games, right? So if you if you go out and you take your legs for whatever reason, you might have to come back and throw the next night. What's your your strategy for quick turnarounds when things get tough and you know you have to compete the next day? Yeah, like I have a little black book that I write in every day, and usually I write a lot of the same stuff over and over again. But mm-hmm. um, one of the things I always write if I have a bad one is I the first thing I always write is get the information and move on. Mm-hmm. You know, and so that means like go ahead and look at the video and look from a non-emotional standpoint like what 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 was the info what happened you know what what do i have to what do i what can i learn from it and then move on and um you know from like that process being process oriented type of standpoint like sometimes you just have to be a good evaluator like if you threw the ball well but you gave up some runs you have to be honest with yourself and say you know what i threw the ball well i'll stay right there um and if you threw the ball poorly but you gave up no runs you have to tell yourself well that's a wake-up call i need to practice x y and z so i just think always being staying on yourself and not giving yourself too much of a break is kind of key absolutely what's uh what's your your day game routine look like from basically the you know the time you leave your house to you know when you get to the park what you uh do from like an in-season throwing program before the day gets going and you know getting ready as the game goes yeah um it depends like if i pitch the previous night then i won't i won't play catch the next morning um, because mm-hmm. the way I've always felt about it is I just pitched. So my feel for pitching is still there, um, mm-hmm. into the, into the next game. And if, and if I end up not pitching in the game, then I then I've got a full rest day. And then the next mm-hmm. day I'll go attack catch play like really seriously and, uh, really train my arm again. And people don't realize that on a 162 game season, if you've got 70 plus appearances, you're, you're basically throwing half the time. So it's not yeah. like you're detraining your arm speed. So. Yeah, I've, yeah, I've, I talked with you about it two years ago um, mm-hmm. when I was struggling like with my arm speed because at that time I was kind of, I was kind of like doing that eye wash catch every day instead mm-hmm. of what I do now, which is if I'm gonna play catch, I play real catch, like I throw the crap out of the ball, and if mm-hmm. I don't want to play catch, then I don't like at all. I won't go out there and throw and like just mess around. So you just explained like Charlie Francis's high low model for elite sprinters, but you did it for baseball players. That was poetry right there. Yeah. It's basically either throw hard or don't throw. <laughs> right. Exactly. So I mean, I, you know, luckily there's been some uh, people who have researched this stuff for me and, and gave me, <laughs> gave me great advice and it really works well. I mean, last year I pitched in a ton of games, but I didn't have any problem because I still probably had 20 or 30 days maybe more that I didn't throw at all mm-hmm. during the season and were able to really recover where other years I would have just kept going, kept throwing and probably fatiguing myself in ways that you don't even really realize it kind of adds up. Absolutely. Um, but to answer your question about day games, I mean, the other thing is uh, you know, I try to go to bed as quickly as I can the night before a day game. Sometimes it's hard if you pitch cause you're wired, but you know, that little bit of sleep really matters and then try to eat really well. I'll go ride the bike, like get the blood flow move, like moving and, you know, do all my normal routine stuff. Try not to treat it too different from a night game. Um, but, you know, also for me, if there's a quiet place I can sneak off to and close my eyes for 30 minutes, I'm not afraid to do that because, um, you know, I want to feel fresh when I go out there. 
Absolutely. Nice. So we, uh, we've made it to the lightning round. These are the, the fun questions. So what advice would you give to a teenage Adam Ottavino? You know, I don't know because a lot of the advice I have would kind of short circuit what I did go through, which made me better now. Like all the failure and all that stuff. Yeah. I hated it while I was going through it, but, but I needed it. So I probably, probably would resist telling myself anything. Would that same uh, advice apply to both college and minor league, Adam Adovino, or what do you think? Um, well, I think in college I could have, I could have done a few things differently, but you know, in the minors I struggled so badly. But I, I truly think that that's the reason why I got better. So yeah. um, I, again, I would just leave it be. Success is in the struggle, right? Yeah. There you go. All right. I'm actually fascinated to know your, your answer to this. You and, you and Max Scherz are the ones I've, I'm, I'm excited to ask. So what's more important, stuff or command? Oh, man. I, <laughs> I think stuff. I mean, I, I, uh, I want to say command because it's, <laughs> it's enormously important. Yep. But, I mean, there's a point there where, where if your stuff is that good, you know, you just don't have to be that sharp with your command. If you're throwing 99 mile an hour, two seamers, like I'm not going to tell you, you have to paint them. You just yeah. don't. So. And that, that was what I asked. I asked Max that, and he hasn't been on the podcast yet, but I, I said what's yeah. more important. And, and I used the example of his 20 strikeout game where he missed, I think it was like 13 of the 20 strikeouts. He missed the glove uh, by like a good foot. Um, so stuff, buds, you get away with a lot more. I think command has been the answer for, for Kluber and for C-Shack and some of those guys that maybe don't have the elite velocity. But, um, you know, it's a, I think it's a fun one to ask everybody because it, it, it impacts how you pitch. Well, I mean, you better have command if you're if you don't have the stuff. I'll tell you yeah, that. But, absolutely. Um, but there are some days where you know, like your stuff's not getting hit. You know? Absolutely. And I mean, does that give you the confidence to sometimes throw the ball down the middle when you otherwise wouldn't? Oh, absolutely. You don't. Yeah. You're not gun shy anymore. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. So, favorite teammate of all time and why? It can be at any level. Um, man, I would say uh, my favorite teammate of all time is a left-handed pitcher that we had with the Rockies by the name of Christian Friedrich. Mm-hmm. Um, we call him the bird. He was just a fun guy, like the always just bringing like fun to the ballpark when everybody else is all serious. I mean, he could be serious, but at the same time, like this guy, this guy's like the best teammate. He would just like all of a sudden out of nowhere, like hit everybody with a text message. Like, Hey, I have some uh, burritos in my room. And he would have like a hundred <laughs> burritos. <in his> <laughs> You're going to get an angry uh, text message from Tyler Anderson that he didn't give a mention. But, uh, <laughs> Tyler he, loves the bird, too. So. There you go. All right. So everybody's on the same page then. Um, yeah. All right. So who are the pitchers that you like to watch and, and why? Uh, currently, I would say, um, you know, DeGrom a lot. Um, mm-hmm. Trying to think. Uh, actually, one of my favorites to watch is this guy, Brad Peacock, who's on the Astros. Yeah. I try Absolutely. to watch guys who throw somewhat similar stuff to me, so. I like Arietta, I like Peacock, I like Kluber. I feel like those guys do a lot of the comeback two-seam fastball, a lot of sliders. So I try to watch a lot of that. And um, I try to watch absolutely none of like my teammate Chapman because I can't learn anything from him. <laughs> nice. Well, that's understandable. So this has been uh, <laughs> super helpful, and I really enjoyed it. Um, last question for you. So yeah. you've got a, a, a lot of not just players, 
uh, but also parents and coaches on this. Um, so one of the things I always am intrigued to know about is, you know, you've, you've been with, you know, three separate organizations at this point. You played Division One college ball. Um, you've certainly been around, I'm sure, in summer ball on different circuits. You've been exposed to um, a lot of different coaches at different levels. Um, and obviously your, your parents, you know, you talk about throwing with your dad and all that. Um, you know, they've been impactful for your development. What, what advice would you give to the, the coaches and parents out there who want to help kids and, you know, set themselves up for success or set the kids up for success? Are there certain things in the coaches that you've seen? Are there certain things that your parents did that you think really helped you along your path to development, particularly when you went through a lot of those struggles and, and came out of it, obviously way better off? So there's a coach uh, that I had in uh, Brooklyn growing up, uh, Mel Zitter, who um, kind of like a legendary coach uh, from for the youth level in New York, like coach Manny Ramirez and Sean Dunstan and just a ton of guys. And one thing he taught me was to be my own coach. And he said, along the way, you're going to meet a ton of coaches and they're going to tell you a lot of stuff and you have to be that filter. You have to understand like what stuff to kind of incorporate and what stuff to let go in one ear and out the other ear. And, and didn't understand it when he said it, but I understood it a lot more later because being the way I am, I tried to take all the advice and use it all at once. And I got really, really confused at times until finally I got through that and I figured out who I was as a pitcher. I started coaching myself. And then my conversations with coaches became a little less master and apprentice and a little bit more like, you know, two guys talking pitching. And once we got to that point where I felt like I had a lot of actual knowledge about what I wanted to do, then all of a sudden, if something was said that a light bulb went off in my head. It was for a good reason. It wasn't like me trying to fit their idea, you know, into my head where it didn't fit. So that just that concept of like really learning yourself, um, that way, when you start to have a relationship with a new coach, you already have a base of understanding of what works for you. Therefore you won't just get immediately thrown off by whatever they tell you. That's outstanding. Nice. All right. So folks can find you on Instagram at Adam Ottavino. Um, and we are psyched that you were able to join us. Thanks so much for taking the time, Adam. All right. Thanks a lot, man. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd be thrilled if you'd consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving us a review to read on iTunes. We welcome your suggestions for future guests and questions. Just email EliteBaseballPodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for your continued support, and we'll see you next episode.